Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. I love the ocean. I feel at peace when I'm next to the water, the sounds, the smells, the salt, the fine grains of sand under my toes enliven all my senses. As an adult, I learned to swim in Cape Cod Bay, and today I'm taking refuge from the heat in San Francisco's marine layer. During the months of the quarantine, my dreams kept returning to the ocean. I felt this tidal surge pulling me towards a sailing adventure. And today, I talk with salty sailing captain and environmental champion, Joe Royal. Joe grew up sailing, raced boats between continents, skippered the Plastiki, a boat made from 12,000 plastic bottles, and then founded the groundbreaking organization Common Seas that is fighting to rid the oceans of plastic. I start by asking Joe Royal, who lives in England in the small town of Dartmouth in Devon, about how her connection to the sea began. Well, my earliest memories are playing with my brothers on the on the beach and by the sea, and it's something that connects all of our family. I was actually quite poorly when I was in my teens, and then my dad would package me up on his sailing boat and take me to sea with him, and it just gave me the most amount of freedom. And I think it was almost that and the freedom and the healing powers of the sea that really captivated me. The kind of energy, the lawlessness, the power, how frightening it can be and also how how humbling it can be. So as soon as I left school, I kind of had this urge to go and um, to become a sailor. I really wanted to become kind of capable at managing whatever Mother Nature blew my way. To most of us who just spend all of our time on shore, it feels so daunting and I mean that part that you're just talking about I think a lot of people's first reaction when they think of the sea is fear and like that there's this dark massive expanse and somehow we shouldn't be near it. Ah, I mean to me that I think the sea has been my constant mentor in life and it's the the place that I go to and that has taught me the most. It is frightening, but also it's bountiful and endless and vast. And I spent 10 years being a sailor. And I think I think I was pretty fortunate because I first went to sea with a guy called Trevor Vincent, who every time I say his name makes me smile so much. He was like the last, what I regard as the last generation of true salty. And uh, nothing, nothing would ever, ever faze him. I started off as the builder at the tea maker and, and worked myself, worked my way up under the hierarchy that there is out there. And uh, I just... I want to learn more about that in a minute, <laughs> but yeah. So. And it's just like some amazing times where, you know, we'd be in the, you know, because you, you go to sleep and then, you know, if you sleep in watches, so you, you wake up, it's always like called the dog watch, isn't it? When you wake up at 2am and the boat's like, whoa, and you've hardly slept and you come on watch and, you know, and I'd look at the wind instruments before coming off, it'd probably be blowing like 50 odd knots of wind and you'd be in the middle of a choppy sea and I'd be like, hi Trevor, you know, anything to report? Oh 
no, it's all good up here. Uh, maybe saw a ship for a couple of hours ago, but nothing to report. And he'd just like go down as if, you know, he's just going home out of the office or something. So I think he instilled me full of full of confidence mm. and yeah. <laughs> and what 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 were those early years like? Like what how do you make a good cup of tea in 50 mile an hour winds or not winds with, with yeah. huge swells? By by learning how to kind of move with the ocean and, and hold on tight. Um, I think that when you think back on it, I think those, those early years were really just such an adventure and exploration. And it was a time before we were so connected to shore. Uh, so you'd, mm. you know, you'd, you'd leave and I'd be like, right, mom, I'm off to, um, cross the Atlantic now. And, you know, I think it's going to take us about 20 days. You'd always add a few days and then you'd go and, you know, you wouldn't speak to anyone until you got to the other side. And then your first job would be to land and work out how to buy a calling card to, to bring home and tell everyone you're okay. And it's, it's, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, that partly you're going into the middle of the Pacific or Atlantic to get away from everyone. Yeah. And so being connected is kind of weird. You're like, I'm actually trying to remove myself a little bit. There's nothing more precious than getting into a wild space, whatever you're comfortable with, nature, you know, in any a forest, a desert, an ocean, the hills, and just spending you know, some time, like ideally more than one night, just detoxing yeah. and being speaking with the speaking and connecting with nature so very powerful so those first 10 years like i don't know i i harbor dreams of of crossing an ocean on a boat i've never done that i've never actually come close to it like how would you begin how would people who have never had the opportunity to sail kind of get involved in sailing well, people think sailing's quite elitist, I think, but actually it's it doesn't it doesn't need to be at all. There's lots of yacht clubs and there's also lots of people that buy boats that need crews. Like it seems easy from the inside, but very, very challenging from the outside to break in. But I think it's a it's a friendly community. So down to your local yacht club. You don't need to know everything when you get on a boat for the first time. You're you're kind of thrown on it sounds like you are thrown in at the deep end and just Joe, you're going to learn this. Yeah. Well, I really, really wanted to become this capable, salty sailor. I think it was because Trevor was so capable. He'd, ins he'd inspired me. And and then you know, what I loved about going to sea was you were the small community of people that, you know, that your life depends on. So it's a beautiful relationship that you build. And sometimes, you know, you turn up to the boat and it's the first time you've met people that you're going to then spend very you know, maybe 20, 30 days in the middle of the ocean in a very, very confined space. But the wonderful thing of, of being at sea is, yeah, is the community and it's the fact that, you know, you've got to be so resourceful. You've got to be the rigger, the electrician, the engineer, the medic, the, the baker of bread. You know, and it's really kind of you're living within your finite resources and it's full of problem solving because at the end of the day, you know, suddenly in the middle of the night, if everything goes wrong and your life depends on it, it's quite amazing how how much we can solve so quickly. Um, so, it, yeah, it definitely teaches you that. And did it give you a different like sense of your place on the planet? It's become kind of obvious to me 
that we're we're just we are a part of nature and we're just an, you know we are just a part of nature and that the ecosystems around us are just you know are very are incredibly powerful just feels like there's no there's nowhere that we're more vulnerable than at sea nearly and yet we pretend that we're so much stronger than nature i mean it feels like a teeny little boat in the middle of a massive ocean you're going to you're going to really feel our context to nature differently you certainly feel very small and you know that you've got no option but to work with everyone with what nature or the weather gives you at that time it's very very real and you're very very connected when you're at sea you're just so present and connected to nature and then you try and carry that home with you and it become and quickly you bec- you can become quite quite disconnected. I got the opportunity of a sponsorship so that I could race yachts, Mm. which was really fantastic because, you know, I was talking before about the fact that when you're sponsored to race yachts, you... You get really nice watches. (laughs) No, you don't get really nice. I know, I never got a really nice watch. (laughs) Doesn't it always seem like, you know, you see, you know, you're reading some magazine and it's Joe Royal with her Rolex that she got. I know, I never, I never got a Rolex. I think Mm, that's a shame. I can see you're not even wearing a watch now. I know, maybe I need to go back. Oh no, I did get a watch actually. No, I'm right, I did get a watch. (laughs) I need to find that and get it on eBay. No, no, I'm joking. But when when you're sponsored to cross to race across oceans, then you are not allowed to use your engine, and uh, it's just the pure sailing. So you're just you know playing a game of chess with the weather systems. I can see your eyes lighting up. It seems like you loved racing. Yeah, I loved I loved that. I loved the adventure and the and the purity of it. <laughs> Give us a place that you race to and from. I raced from France to uh, Salvador in Brazil. As a skipper, do you get to like pick who goes with you on the boat? Yes. So on that race, I sailed with just one other girl. Uh, so, mm. Yeah, the two of us, Alexia Barrier, who's a fantastic French sailor. So it's you and and Alexia Barrier. And like, what are you looking for in someone when you're doing something that intense? Is it the same skills that you have? Is it like complementary? And somebody that you're going to have a bit of a giggle with and somebody that you really trust and admire and someone that's full of determination and grit. Yeah, I mean, there's no kind of hiding your personality from each other after a few days at sea. And and maybe it teaches you to have good intuition about people. But I've always been very fortunate about the people that I've been to sea with. I think it's a breed of people that that share a lot of commonality. You've sailed, you've you've raced, you've kind of gone across the world's oceans. The way that I first interacted with you without ever meeting you was, I get this call from the mayor's office saying there's a boat down at Pier 39 called the the Plastiki, and there's this guy called David de Rothschild, and he's gotten bottles from all around here, and and they're actually going to sail this thing. And I was like... Is, is this a joke? <laughs> so I went down there and it was in, incredible. And and I find out that you you were the skipper. Uh-huh. Like you were in charge of this entire project. And so, so how did you go from being a skipper on a race boat across the Atlantic to thinking it made sense to, to captain a boat made out of recycled plastic bottles? 
Like, how did that happen? That's fantastic that you came to see it. By the time that you saw it, if it was nearly complete, that was... Well, I didn't know if it was nearly complete. When I turned off, David had said to me, uh, we'd love you to be the skipper of this boat. (laughs) When I turned up to see this raft out of plastic bottles that I was going to skip her across the Pacific... It was actually just a pile of plastic bottles. And we yeah, hadn't that's yet. That's when I saw it. Okay. We hadn't yet worked out. Because they melted we, it, right? <laughs> so we hadn't yet worked out how we were going to build the raft. That's how. Yeah. I mean, David had read the UN report that was talking about the amounting plastic in the North Pacific Gyre. And he, he decided that actually. We don't want to just go and report about a problem. We want to report about the solution. So then he built this team together, of which I was very fortunate to be a part of it. And we decided that what we were going to do is is build the world's first ocean-going sailing vessel that was designed to the strictest uh, circular economy principles. And then to test the strength of this boat, we were going to sail it from... San Francisco to the North Pacific Gyre. But when David said, it just came out in this quite important interview that actually we're going to sail it from San Francisco to Sydney because it sounded really cool. We had around 12,000 single-use, post-use pop bottles. We filled each of those bottles with dry ice uh, so that they were really, really robust so that when they wouldn't lose their integrity with the power of the waves coming at them. And then, so we had all these bottles and they were in one pile. And then we were like, right, how are we all going to, how are these bottles going to transport us from San Francisco to Sydney? Uh, (laughs) So then yet, you know, and also with the design principle of this has got to be, you know, leading circular economy thinking. So it took us, you know, a long time to to make that transition and actually that journey in itself was just such a fantastically interesting voyage we decided that the boat needed to be made of as least uh types of material as possible and ensure that all of those ingredients have as least toxicity in them and ensure that anything that we build that after it's finished its first life we can take it apart and each part has another use or another value So with this in mind, we thought, right, well, let's imagine that the boat is going to be all kind of melted down eventually and we're going to build a plane and that's going to carry our lives again. So we always are thinking about, okay, well, we need to keep the structural integrity of this material because it's going to be a plane and carry our lives again. So we went off and we found um, some fantastic support from lots of material designers and companies and uh, we built the superstructure. The shape was inspired by a Polynesian craft and so we had these these two holes which the bottles kind of fitted in on the outside each one was 60 foot and they were joined together by a platform again made from PET which is the same material as a plastic bottle is made from and um, we heat welded it all together because PET you know melts at a certain temperature so we could heat it and it all welded together so it meant that we didn't need to use a resin and then we didn't just build a box on top of it. That would have been far too simple. We built a Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome on top of it to all live in because Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome is the largest space for the strongest structure. So like, right, so we built this dome again out of the same material. (laughs) 
so Joe, okay, I mean, up until this point, you're incredibly serious, thoughtful sailor that's done all this racing, and now you're with a bunch of people like Joe. You got to sail. We're going to put all these plastic bottles together, and then yeah, and now we're going to put a geodesic dome on the top of it, and. Oh, don't worry. We're not just sailing it to like Midway Island. Now we're sailing it to Sydney. And I mean, at what point were you like, put your hand up? Uh, Does anyone know if this is going to float? I know. I went from, um, you know, wanting to do the Vendée Globe, be the, you know, one of the fastest people to sail solo around the world, to actually having a world record for the slowest Pacific crossing. (laughs) (laughs) it was sometimes a challenge and hope, you know, sometimes I was the serious one that was putting my hand up going, well, how are we going to make sure we're safe? So we had a lot of different knowledges coming together around the project, which I think is always so important to solve a problem. So when we set sail, by the point we set sail. So uh, what year was that, Joe? 2010, 10 years ago. I felt very, very confident that the boat was going to carry our lives across the Pacific. And there were times in the voyage that I questioned that confidence, but... um, (laughs) Tell us about those. So you set off. So we set off uh, with five guys, no girls. I think I would definitely have girls on future expeditions. And out of the crew, we had uh, a friend of mine who I'd sailed a lot with, very competent sailor, David Thompson. And the rest of the guys had probably not spent over one or two nights at sea before. Oh my God. Uh, so it was quite an undertaking. We left in San Francisco. Anyway, it was a magical moment when we left. You know, so many people waving us goodbye. We yeah. sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge. So navigating was interesting. You know, we had no engine. Mm. So it's like, you know, these tiny atolls, Pacific Islands in the middle, you know, you've got however many miles to sail across the largest ocean and you're just trying to aim for a pinprick on the chart on a boat, when you look, fulfill your dream of going sailing, which you will do, you'll realize that you know, yeah, everyone has got it in them. It's just co- common sense and and working with the working with what you've got really well. <laughs> so we landed in Line Islands. We had a few repairs to do, and then um, we set off again, and this time it was to cross the equator. And, you know, the boat was built obviously from PET, from plastic, which uh, contracts in the cold and relaxes in the heat. And we had, you know, no engine and we had our sails and our sails were hoisted on a on a piece of aluminum irrigation pipe. I don't know if it was the best design in hindsight, was then, you know, attached by these wires to the hull of the boat, to the platform. So obviously you've got this huge thing, this pipe sticking up in the air, reliant on this triangulation of wires attached to the deck. And yet the deck is made from this plastic that kind of contracts in the cold and relaxes in the heat. And you're going through the equator, very, very hot in the day. So it was kind of the boat was stretching out in the day and then closing in in the evening. So then you had this irrigation pipe kind of doing this very nervous wobble throughout the night. So then we pulled into Samoa and uh, we decided that actually we needed to change the rigging. I spent quite a bit of time in Samoa and everyone remembers the boat coming in. And so Do they? You had an impression. Yeah, Are people you... were like, oh yeah, yeah. There was this big boat made out of plastic that came and visited us before you came. I was like, oh. 
Oh, that's so, so yeah. fantastic to hear. And it's yeah. so nice to, to talk about it because it was just the most incredible trip. I learned so much, met, you know, incredible people and, and really has shaped what I'm doing today. And so. did you ever make it to Sydney? We made it to Sydney. Um, it took a lot longer than we, we thought it would take. We hid in uh, New Caledonia for the right weather phase. We set off in what we think. We had serious, serious discussions between us about whether we should continue on. And then on our approach into Sydney, we hit um, an almighty storm. There was a very, there was a very, very calm evening. It was all very eerie. We had all our sails up and we didn't really, we didn't see it on the forecast. We didn't have the most fantastic forecasting at that stage 10 years ago. And it's kind of like all of the winds, all of the energy got sucked out of the, of the sky and kind of held its breath for a while and then just bam, breathed on us <laughs> in the most immense uh, velocity uh, we could have possibly wanted to experience on that boat, especially on our, you know, on our handmade boat, you know, two and a half months into the longest ocean crossing you could ever, do ever have done. So it was a horrendous night. We were all pretty shattered by that stage. You know, we'd been at sea two and a half months on watch. So not had to sleep. And more what, than probably... What's going through your like your mind, Joe? Yeah. Like, are you thinking the boat's going to rip apart? Are you going <laughs> to like, are you all tied to the boat at that point? Like, we weren't all tied to the boat. Of... Once we got all the sails down, all we could do was, was, was sit tight and run with it. So we had, you know, just our piece of irrigation pipe in the air and a little we to put a little jib up a little handkerchief for stability and we ran with this storm for a few days but unfortunately the storm took us away from Sydney so that was pretty hard on the crew each day we're further and further away but yeah the boat survived it was the best test for the boats we were thinking gosh if if we can survive on this uh, boat designed to the strictest secular economy principles then we can certainly make things like everyday products, like toothbrushes, and you know, yeah. out of we can all we must be able to you know engineer these everyday products that are wasted. And what was it like, just on a personal level? So, I mean, at sea, there is an ultimate responsibility that lies with the captain, and it's very clear and it's very important actually for those times that the weather does kick in. You need to have a very clear command structure. And I think that when we got off the boat, we were all a bit like, oh, wow, that was um, a, a deep experience. You know, and we got off and we spent some time in Sydney. And then I went to Burning Man with my friends. And it was like, wow. wow. <laughs> and I remember my friend saying to me at one stage, because, you know, it was probably being quite bossy. And my friend was like, you're not on the plastique anymore, Joe. And like, you can relax. And I'm like, oh, yeah, good point. Thanks for that. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. What, what, Jesus. Yeah. Getting off, getting off the plastic, <laughs> going to Burning Man. Like, how did you think about and, and end up creating the organization Common Seas? Mm. Like, it feels like some people after that experience would be like, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm moving to a different space, but you, yeah, you, you doubled a, down. It was a real juncture in my, um, in my life. Our mission was to tell the story of plastic being in the ocean and tell the story of what the solutions are. And we did that super well. We arrived in Sydney 
with the world media, we had like helicopters in the air. Like I think it was like five or six helicopters. We came into more outside the Maritime Museum. The pontoon was just flooding with journalists. And, you know, it was an extraordinary amount of attention to the issue. But, you know, arriving back in England, I knew that there was more plastic in the ocean than, than there was when we set off. And it felt like, you know, we were, you know, I was 30 years old and I'd been a sailor and I, we'd grabbed the attention of this audience, but I didn't really know how to support everyone to act and how to reduce the amount of plastic in the ocean. So then I went back to university and did a master's in environmental science and I started to work alongside the ocean advocates and uh, within the environmental institutions and learn as much as I could about how we were going to kind of deliver these systems that enable us to live in greater harmony with nature and, and with the ocean. And that's, you know, what, what we're trying to do at Common Seas. How do you balance your love and passion for the ocean? Like, how, how do you keep that going while you fight? for in boardrooms and <laughs> and giving speeches and all the stuff you have to do running an organization uh well i swim in the sea every morning <laughs> and um in fact just before we started speaking i went for a quick sea swim and i met two seals so that was very nice i, I obviously don't get to do the ocean the transocean sailing anymore um and one day I, I will do that again um but it feels like we've got a very short window of opportunity here to safeguard that balance between people and the sea. And that it feels like the biggest race that we could ever be in. And it's exciting mm. and it involves, you know, all of the creativity and problem solving and teamwork and systems thinking that any ocean adventure has to have within it. So I still feel that I'm using all those skills and I feel very connected to the kind of the reasons and the actions that I love at sea, but within our common seas, shore-based team. <laughs> UC Santa Barbara came out with a study that about 10 million tons of plastic go into the world's ocean every year. Mm. And as we move away, for instance, from transportation fuels, it feels like the world's oil companies are all moving to create more and more plastics factories. Every business needs to really rapidly reduce the production and use of single-use plastics and any plastic they put on the market they need to be responsible for harvesting it back financially responsible we need every country to manage its own waste in on its own land so not shipping it overseas and we need government and business to provide us consumers with the systems that enable us to live our lives with reduced plastics. And I think that we all need to understand what plastic really is. It's a dangerous material that should only be used for the purpose that it's really fantastic for like medical use. It feels like, you know, way too late, 20 years too late, we're starting to understand that we need to um, move away from fossil fuels the petrochemical chemical companies are, are concerned about their future. So what they're doing is investing in plastics so that they're firming up their future. And, and, and what we're seeing, therefore, 
is a plastics industry that is not driven by demand, but it's driven by by supply. What we're seeing is over from our modeling that we've done recently with with Petros, Systemic, Oxford, Leeds, like most incredible brains, is that actually we've got an investment of 2.3 trillion US dollars forecasted into new plastics within the next 20 years. Mm. And if that is realized, then actually, you know, plastic production and, and the plastics value chain will take up a fifth of the available carbon budget for us to achieve our 1.5 cap. So the production of plastic does not align with our climate goals as businesses and as governments have got to commit to producing and providing plastic-free alternatives. We've got to be holistic in our response. Joe, it feels like you have a completely different frame and history and perspective than the average executive director of a nonprofit in this space. How do you think those experiences that you had actually being at sea, being a skipper, racing, helping create a boat out of plastic that you sail, you know, halfway around the world. How do those experiences like change how you think about the day-to-day advocacy that you do? I'm very driven by strong awareness of our connection with nature and with the ocean. So I think bringing disparate knowledges to solve a problem is is very, very important. Um, I think that, Yes, we need to kind of be high level and we need to be thinking about the policies and the systems on a high level. So at the, you know, in the boardrooms, we need to be discussing those. But we also need an element of rolling our sleeves up and getting on with it. A huge thank you to Joe Royal for talking with Podship Earth today. Joe's description of how the lawlessness and energy and power of the sea frightened, humbled, and captivated her helped me see the ocean in a completely different light. The determination, resourcefulness, and grit that are key ingredients to Joe being the salty sailor she became also allowed her to evolve into a new and more impactful leader in the nonprofit world the intuition and strength of character that can only be gained through skippering a boat made from 12,000 plastic bottles halfway around the world makes me want to immediately embark on a trans-Pacific adventure of my own. The race to save the oceans from plastic pollution and prevent big oil from investing $2.3 trillion into new plastic production is something we all need to work with Joe and Common Seas to accomplish. In doing so, we'll help battle climate change and reinforce our intimate connection to the sea. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, let me know if you need a novice crewmate for your next ocean adventure. <laughs>